You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And in this episode, we are discussing episode five of season five of Orphan Black, Ease for Idle Millionaires. And while we will talk about anything and everything that happened in that episode, there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. So what did you think, Chris? Uh, I, I was going to cue you, but I guess I'll do it. Delphine! <laughs> Delphine! But that sounds too longing, because she was back for most of the episode. I know, I know, but I still long for her again. Though I, I was very happy that she came back after only two episodes. I was so worried what I'm hearing is like that you're 12. never not longing for her. Yes, I thought that was clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But what did you think of the episode, Chris? I, I thought the episode was pretty good. There was a lot of a lot of information in this episode. I feel like I need to watch it again, which is always good. I am happy to rewatch Orphan Black episodes. I feel conflicted about some of the things that happened, which we will get to. But but I have a lot of a lot of warm feelings about things that happened in this episode. Is that vague? That's probably yes, too vague. That's very vague. <laughs> but it's appropriate because it was an episode with Delphine. So, vagueness <laughs> <laughs> and being kind of cagey is appropriate. What, what did you think of the episode, Stephanie? As if I need to ask. <laughs> I thought it was great because, as we had, had kind of wondered, I feel like this is definitely a Cosima episode. This is, I think, the equivalent of what we got for Allison a couple of weeks ago. While Cosima was a, a big part of the premiere, it felt more like she was driving the clone story. Whereas in this episode, even though we still got more information about the, the clone plotline, it really featured Cosima as Cosima. It really highlighted who she was, who she is as a person. She's not dead. Oh my gosh, why did I use past tense? <laughs> who I have Kasima no idea. Is as a person, right? Because the episode all comes down to that really wonderful moment, wonderful slash terrible moment between her and Westmoreland and Yanis at the end of the episode. And it just feels like yes, this is what I love about Cosima. I feel like this episode really highlighted her as a character really well and gave us some good stuff with her and Delphine. So I really enjoyed this episode. It gave me feelings. I teared up at the end. I thought it was great. Excellent. Let us talk about Cosima and Delphine because I know you want to. <laughs> you know, I think let's move on to Rachel. She really... <laughs> <laughs> I do not buy it, but okay. <laughs> so Cosima and Delphine, flashback. We got another flashback. How do you feel this feel about this? Because I know you are not crazy about flashbacks in general. I'm not. I didn't mind the flashback itself, but they did that thing with the flashback later in the episode that drives me crazy, where they flashed back to the flashback they just showed us at the beginning of the episode. Why does TV shows do that, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. Because your average viewer is paying way less attention than we are. Uh, I suppose. Certain people... <laughs> You're talking about your father, are you? <laughs> I was, yes. They they need the reminder because they have short attention spans. I'm just saying. But I did think that the flashback in and of itself, I felt like that was good stuff. You know, that it sort of, it wasn't necessarily new information, but I felt like it distilled what we have seen of Cosima and Delphine's relationship and their dynamic. I thought it distilled it down into an interaction really well. Yes, and I do think it, yeah, because it really highlighted the dynamic that we were talking about in this episode, or that we were seeing, rather. Because this is something we'd sort of talked about when season two premiered. We're kind of like, okay, but how did they get there <laughs> mm -hmm. from where they left off? I mean, we were able to fill in the blanks, obviously, because obviously it seemed that they reconciled more that they more than they had been by the end of the first season because they were in bed and partially naked. Anyway, but yeah, I think to have that exchange where they were talking about, is it fair to say, do you think, that they were making sort of a commitment there? Yeah. And I feel like 
that commitment to each other that they made, this idea that Delphine's going to do what she wants, everything she can to protect Cosima, and what Cosima's going to do in the situation was defy the people who created her. And I, and I kind of like that, that it was like this, how are we going to handle this situation together is what it felt like to me. Yeah, it's sort of a commitment to handling the situation that they're in. And I also felt like the scene, you know, it, it really, it gets to the heart of what the show is exploring of what makes an individual an individual. Because what mm-hmm. Kasima is upset about clearly is this idea that she is owned, that she is not her own person. And Delphine reassuring her that, you know, yes, yes, you are. These are the things that are you that they cannot take away from you. And that's what this whole episode leads to, right? Is is Kasima asserting to Westmoreland, you know, you might have created me, but you can't take away my humanity. And, oh, I just, I love that moment. Oh, it Kasima. was a really good moment. It really was. And that's how I feel like Kasima has been used in the series, right? Because she, as Westmoreland says, she is in the middle of this, like, the clinical and the personal, because she has the connection to the science and the research and that understanding that the other clones and clone club do not have. She can kind of straddle both worlds. And the fact that she was the first to show the symptoms of the prion disease, she's been a really useful character in sort of separating out the the biological side of things and, like, more of the personal side of things, if that makes sense. And I just, I really thought this episode did that well. I keep thinking about that scene in the first season where she and Delphine are at dinner and Leahy shows up. Right. And they invite him to join them and they have that exchange where Cosima's sort of provoking him, basically. I keep thinking about mm-hmm. that scene this season. I mean, that that whole scene is about Leaky's talking about how she'll be on the cover of, was it Scientific American? What was the name of the, I can't remember. I believe that's right. And she's like, they don't put scientists on the cover of that. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of this this exchange back and forth about sort of acknowledging that she is both the scientist and the science. Right. So and I in feel fact, like we- that's being hit pretty hard this season. And I think you could say that the dinner party we have in this episode is a callback to that moment to Leaky, perhaps. it's Or at least a similar moment mm-hmm. to that conversation that she has with Leaky, where she is confronting people involved with the experiment that technically owns her biology, but she's – and she's being, like, very Cosima defiant throughout the entire thing. I, I just <laughs> – I I found it very delightful to see how she was behaving at the dinner party where, you know, she shows up in the tux because frock that favorite line of the season so far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's enjoying herself. She's drinking wine. She's given Westmoreland kind of a hard time. And and Delphine is just kind of like quietly making faces at her like, you're kind of you're pushing it. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, simultaneously. I don't know if you should do this, but I'm enjoying it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. It just felt like such a Kasima thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've always loved about Kasima. She's been, I think, the most genuine clone. She's the one who really is is not good at hiding things. You know, when she had to try to be Allison that one time, she was terrible at it because she's not particularly good at being deceptive. She just has everything out on the front porch, I feel like, when it comes to Kasima. Mm-hmm. I kind of want I, I want to use the word belligerent belligerent to describe the way she is acting in this episode. It's not quite right, but it's close enough. She's definitely cheeky. <laughs> yes, there you go. Del- Delphine's much better at uh, that description. Coming up with a good description for Casima's behavior. Anyway, I do want to address though. <sighs> I feel conflicted, Stephanie. I feel conflicted, too. Okay. I thought you probably would, but please, people, do not get angry with me. (laughs) Okay, but in this episode, they acknowledge the dynamic of this relationship, right? Which is basically... Meaning, you're you're talking about Cosima and Delphine. Cosima and Delphine, yes. Be clear. Cosima says something about, you know, I push too hard and you do things without my consent. Mm-hmm. And 
Delphine's response is basically like, okay, so either we break up or we just accept that this is the way this is. And I'm like, I don't think those are the only two options, Delphine. But apparently Delphine seems to think so. And then they accept it. But like, that's not healthy. It it was a very unsatisfying conclusion to their reuniting, for me at least. While I, I totally like them as a couple, I really do, I don't want them to continue to have this thing, especially where Delphine is doing things without Cosima's consent. Right. And I think the fact that they frame it that way, I mean, this is this is the thing we've talked about before, that we find this problematic. So I'm glad that they're acknowledging it. But also, I am, I am unnerved that they're like, well, this is the way it is. I guess we're gonna, we're gonna go with it. Yeah. Can, can we not? Can we adjust this slightly? <laughs> I guess I'm, I, I personally am trying to take comfort in the fact that we know this is the last season. It feels like this whole situation with the clone project has to come to a head in some regard. And so I'm hoping that this whole need for Delphine to be secretive and do things without Cosima's consent will be over with soon. So I'm hoping they're maybe acknowledging it as hopefully a temporary thing. I don't know. But yeah, I had the same feelings of unease when they came to that conclusion in that point of the episode. Well, and that they framed it that way and left it framed that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? I guess I feel now, while I don't like the fact that Delphine is doing things without telling Cosima everything, and as we saw in this episode, you know, she's offering up information to Westmoreland, etc., in exchange for retaining some of her own autonomy so that she can help Cosima. I, I do feel like, I feel a little bit better about what we see Delphine doing now without telling Cosima than I have previously. Like, thinking right. back to seasons two and three, and it feels less like Cosima's body is necessarily the thing that is being that Delphine is manipulating without Cosima's consent. Am I making any sense? I feel like I'm babbling, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> I, I think I get what you're saying. And I mean, I agree. I think there are mitigating factors at this point, because we do know what it is that Delphine is doing. Overall, big picture wise, we don't know details, obviously. Right. But we see her working with Mrs. S. And I think that's a mitigating factor, too. The fact that Yes, Delphine is doing things without Cosima's consent, but also is working as part of a bigger plan to overthrow the system. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this system, which is especially more so trying to do things without Cosima's consent. Know what I mean? Right. So her motives are clearer than they have been for much of the series, perhaps. Right. And I, I want to reemphasize here that... I have pretty much always trusted Delphine's intentions. Because <laughs> I feel like people maybe are unclear about this. I trust Delphine's intentions, but her methods have always troubled me. <laughs> right. I'm thinking back to like one of their first bones of contention when Delphine didn't tell Cosima that like the treatment she was receiving came from Kira. And Clearly, Delphine didn't tell her that because she knew Cosima would be upset, which means that's totally something Delphine should have told Cosima. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like we're there anymore. It feels like Delphine has her methods aren't as duplicitous as that felt. It's more just that she's being secretive, which is still problematic, but I feel like less problematic than before, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, to me, a lot of it is that before she just seemed like a, a rogue agent, right? She was doing mm -hmm. stuff completely on her own and not telling anybody. Anybody, yeah. But now she's working with Mrs. S and Felix and, you know what I mean? Like, there is a larger network working to hopefully very soon overthrow this terrible system, by which mm -hmm. I mean Neolution. And I think that's a good point, this idea that we have – a network of people who care about the sisters working together. It feels less like individuals trying to decide what is best for one particular clone. It feels more now like a support network. Right. And and like 
now there can be checks and balances, perhaps, right? If Delphine's idea is terrible, Mrs. S will tell her that. (laughs) (laughs) That's always part of my concern, because it feels very much more like, as you say, I mean, this is an actual support network, as opposed to one person trying to decide the fate of other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Delphine has always been, and I think that's what makes her a great character, is she's always been a really complicated character who I think there's a lot about her that you just immediately love and you value about her. But then she does things like her actions that make you go, Delphine, why are you doing it that way? We understand you're trying to help Kasima or trying to help Clone Club, but why did you have to go about it in that manner? Right. Like trusting her intentions, but not her methods. Yeah. So again, and I feel like this this is what makes her a great character. I'm not trying to criticize Delphine as a character. I think she's a great character. Me it's, too. And yeah, and and that's what makes her so compelling is the fact that and what makes so many of the characters on Orphan Black compelling is that they aren't perfect people. You know, they they might have the best of intentions, but they do problematic things, and that's far more interesting to watch, right? Than people who are always doing the right thing all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's more interesting to see people having good intentions and doing wrong things and having to deal with the consequences of those things. I feel like that last part needs highlighting. Consequences. (laughs) Too often I see these shows, and I complained about this many times before, where there's like the rogue dude who does terrible things, but for the right reasons, and nobody ever calls him out on it. Mm -hmm. Why does it always seem to be a rogue dude? Yeah. I don't know. I'm tired of it, though. But they just let him do it because he gets results or whatever. No, mm-hmm. those those actions have should have consequences. Anyway, that is off topic, Chris. We were talking about Delphine and uh, Mrs. S. And I wanted to note, or at least something that stood out as noteworthy to me in their ending scene together at the kitchen table, was that Delphine said it was Mrs. S's deep throat who led them to Cody. I know. I had been assuming it was Delphine who had led them to to Cody. So who the heck is Mrs. S's deep throat if it's not Delphine? Because I keep pressing for this, I'm going to press for it again. Marianne Bowles? She did like Mrs. S. She commented on that specifically, that she liked Mrs. S. But she's really my best guess, unless she somehow has inroads to Susan Duncan. Hmm. Because I feel like... I don't know that Ira would have would have known about Virginia Cody. No, because he seemed pr- if he did, he did a really good job seeming surprised in the last episode. Yeah, but who's Mrs. S's deep throat if it's not Delphine? Intriguing. I hope it's Marion Bowles. <laughs> I know we need I'm never closure. Go, Stephanie. I'd- <laughs> You and I, we might be the only two orphan black fans out there, but you and I need closure on Marion Bowles. <laughs> we really do. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but I just felt so starry-eyed watching this episode. I just am so enchanted by Delphine, even though, again, sometimes she does things and I think, no, I just, I love her so much. I think she's so amazing. <sighs> she was windblown. <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of enjoy at that at the beginning of the episode where there's a flash of hair and because he was like, Delphine. <laughs> <laughs> that hair can only belong to one person. <laughs> And I love that we had that moment where Delphine's gone up to the house, Cosima saw her, and then Delphine comes back to the yurt and is, you know, trying to greet Cosima. I feel like there's a moment where Cosima has to try to decide, like, how much do I tell her? Because I feel like I know already she hasn't told me everything. She's trying to hide things from me. Yeah. I think she's, like, kneeling by the bed or something like that. But there's clearly this moment where Cosima's thinking – how much should I tell her? But then I knew. I'm like, Kasima, you're you. You're going to tell her everything. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. And Delphine shared some of that information with Westmoreland. And Kasima felt betrayed. It's like, but you knew, Kasima, You knew. <laughs> Not Is that, that one of those Kasima's opposites fault. attract kind of things? I feel like it. I feel like it maybe. Delphine is super secretive and Kasima's just not. <laughs> In the long run, they probably will will be able to to balance each other well. <laughs> Here's hoping. Yeah, they just need to to we just need Delphine to be always honest with Kasima. She could be cagey with other people all she wants, but 
if they're going to be a long-term relationship, Delphine needs to get to the point where she can be honest with Cosima all the time. That's our relationship advice. We should probably move on. (laughs) (laughs) We have perhaps dwelled too long. (laughs) Let's talk about costuming. Because, as you mentioned earlier, frock that. (laughs) I mean, Delphine looked great in in her frock. (laughs) She really gave it her all and did her best in that ridiculous dress. She did not look terrible, you know? I feel like not everybody could look as good in that ridiculous dress as she did. (laughs) She she pulled it off. Yes, Delphine did do her best to pull it off. I thought Kazima looked great in a tux, especially when she took off the jacket and tie. When she was wearing, like, the shirt and the trousers. I thought she looked great. That was a really good look. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? This kind of suits Kasima. It's completely different from her usual look, but but she's making it work. Mm-hmm. I thought it was completely in character for her to, to issue the expectation that she would dress a particular way. She's kind of, She was kind of like, fine, I will change my clothes, but not into the ones you're expecting me to. Again, with the belligerence. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, also, at the dinner party, she mentions her parents. Fandom has been wondering about this. I actually saw a good post on Tumblr that was like, okay, but but Jean could be either a man's name or a woman's name. Yes, it is true. And I did look in the closed captioning, which isn't always 100% accurate. <laughs> There's some really bad closed captioning in season one. Uh, but they did... <laughs> I think I know the thing you're talking about. It's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> they did spell it G-E-N-E, which is usually how men named Jean is spelled, but not always. Yeah. But, but how appropriate, who knows? How appropriate, though, that she would have a, a parent named Jean. I know, right? But apparently they're professors who live on a houseboat. And then I think, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if that had always been the intention for her parents, because I do feel like that lines up with some speculation that people have had about her parents. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like I've seen people be like, you know, what if Kasima's parents are also scientists or academics or what have you? Yeah. So you're wondering if it if it came first from the writers or the writers took it from fandom? Yeah. That's a good question. And we did get at least something of an answer to, I think, the biggest question people have had about Kasima's parents. Where the heck are they? Because she's been sick. Why has nobody called this girl's parents? I I buy this because, again, Kasima is not good at keeping secrets. She has to tell everybody everything. You know, she says that she can't tell them she's sick because then she'd have to tell them or tell them she's a clone and that would let them know that, like, their lives had been a lie and she doesn't want to do that to them. And I buy it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a line in there somewhere before about not wanting them to know that she's sick? I believe so. Okay. I was thinking they'd at least made made mention of it before, though to a much lesser extent. I kind of hope we'll meet them now, but I'm not I'm yeah. not holding my breath for it. There are only five episodes left. Mm-hmm. What will I do with myself when it's over, Stephanie? <laughs> I won't know who I am anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully by the end of the series, they will have given you an answer to that somewhat, because that's one of the questions of the show. (laughs) What makes you, you? (laughs) I gotcha. I gotcha. It took me a second, but I gotcha. I just, who will I be without this constant stress? (laughs) And speaking of what makes you, you, I felt like the, the dinner party also did a really good job highlighting what has, I think, always been the case in regards to Kasima versus the other scientist figures we've seen on the show, is Kasima sees people as people first, rather than Westmoreland and Cody and Susan Duncan really seeing them more as test subjects rather than fully people. And then Susan Duncan, of course, jumps in with the like, oh, no, no, I, I tried to stop them, or or whatever it was that she says trying to distance herself from that mm-hmm. attitude. But but like, meh, I don't think you're as good as you think you are, Susan Duncan. Right. We do see evidence of what was revealed of her last season, where she seems to at least have a comprehension of the clones on a personal level. You know, she knew Kasima's parents' names and 
I think we saw that she does have affection for the clones. But, but don't you feel like she kind of thinks of them more as like pets? Like they're not quite they're they're more than just test subjects. She she as you say has sort of a personal connection to them, but I still don't think she sees them as equal. I think even though she may not conceive of them as not people, I do still think they are primarily a means to an end for her. Mm-hmm. So they are inherently more valuable because of contributions they can make to her work and scientific discovery than they are as human beings. And it could just be that's how Susan conceives of all people, not just the people. To say, <laughs> she's it could experimenting just be that, on. like, science is more important than humans. Mm-hmm. Could be. Something I really appreciated about the scene in which Kasima and Westmoreland are kind of confronting that situation with Yanis is I, I actually really liked when he hands her the gun and he frames it for her in this go ahead, put him out of your out of his suffering if you're so into ethics. And then she can't because I, I don't know. I just I really liked the way that that was set up, this idea that he's offering her what he's presenting to be the ethical choice, but Kasima makes her own choice instead, which fits more with who she is as a person. Right, and that she goes to comfort him then, also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I suppose Westmoreland might not necessarily be wrong. We don't know how injured Yanis is. It, it could be that there isn't a way to save him, but I like that Kasima's like, well, I mean, they have medical supplies there, obviously. So Kasima's kind of like, well, we don't know yet. So let me find out if I can help. Well, and I think it was important to, for us to see how Yanis was reacting to her, pointing a gun at him. Because I'm, I'm thinking to back to a, a scene in the first season of The Hundred, where one of the, the people on the show, he's been just burned really badly with some acid rain and he's really suffering and you know Clark comes upon him realizes that death is imminent for him and so you know she very gently like cuts his carotid artery so that he can he can die and not be in pain anymore and i think what's important about that scene is we see i'm forgetting that character's name but he clearly he doesn't want to suffer anymore and he is asking for people to help him to die. And that is not how Yanis was reacting to Kasima. Because I feel like it, it would have been a completely different situation if he didn't seem scared. Mm -hmm. Because he seemed scared of the gun, it was important that Kasima was the one who could see that. And it's like, no, this is not the ethical thing to do in this moment to kill him, even if he might not be able, even if we might not be able to help him, ultimately. Like, that's not the ethical thing to do in this situation. Because again... Kasima values other people. And like their their autonomy over their bodies and themselves. Yeah. Yes. Consent and autonomy, very important. I feel like I'm really rambling this episode. It's because I have a lot of emotions about this stuff. So forgive me for not being more coherent. <laughs> this is just how I am all the time. <laughs> Overly emotional about everything and and therefore rambling. That's my excuse. But Westmoreland is terrible. We knew he was terrible. Because not only does he shoot Yanis in the head, he has now imprisoned Kasima in his basement. Ugh. I actually, I, I know, I, I had a thought about this, though. Do we think that Kasima being essentially imprisoned right now is, is like some sort of clone club parody? P-A-R-I-T-Y, not O-D-Y. I was thinking about this. I think maybe Kasima's the only member of Clone Club that hasn't been imprisoned at some point during the series. This is Stephanie in the editing room, and I recalled not long after we finished recording this episode that we have, in fact, seen Kasima be held captive. She is locked in her laboratory by presumably Susan Duncan, but it's just for such a short period of time, and that's really the only instance I can recall. So I do think that Chris has a point to make here, and so I went ahead and left in our discussion. But I did want to include that we did remember that instance in which Kasima had been held captive. Imprisoned, perhaps being too, too broad a term, because Allison technically wasn't imprisoned. She's been been held at Dyad a couple times, but I was more thinking about 
again, not actual imprisonment, but she was in rehab in season two and essentially was forced to stay there. But we've seen Sarah held hostage, held prisoner at the, the caster base. Actually, I think we've seen all of those things. Right. She's been held hostage and yep. held captive and held anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it happens Sarah. a lot. Uh <laughs> Helena also we've seen held by the caster people. And she was in a literal cage in season one by Tomas. Yes. I mean Helena's had it the worst of everybody, but Yep. But my point is basically all the members of Clone Club during the series have been held captive in some place for some amount of time. So you know, except for Kasima until now. So I'm like, again, is it a f- final season kind of thing where it's like, well, you know what we haven't done yet? <laughs> you know who hasn't hasn't had this happen to them yet? You're making this sound like the writers are sitting down. You know what would be a fun thing to do? <laughs> do, do you not think that that's what happened? <laughs> I'm going to say no. I'm going to hope that they did not frame it as a fun <laughs> thing to do. To I'm kind of joking about this, which I know I shouldn't do. But... I mean, not not as a fun thing to do, but again, to to draw the parallels between all the characters. So I feel like this is a thing that they consciously do, right? They have similar things happen to the various clones, right? Right. So in that context, do you think that's maybe what happened? Possibly. Because Kasima's confines have always been a bit more, not quite so literal, Right. It's been more about her illness and being trapped with that, essentially. Mm. And f- being watched while she was working at Dyad and things like that, but not right. necessarily a literal cage. Right. Not actually held captive, physically, overtly. The same way she's been when she's been at, at Revival, at the village, is that she clearly is not 100% autonomous, but she hasn't been held captive the way that she is now. It was just a thought I had. It's quite possible. And I also think, to your point, this is something that the series emphasizes, is that while it is upsetting when one of our clones dies, the big thing that the show has always been about is autonomy and getting to decide one's own fate. So seeing our clones imprisoned, that is pretty much some of the most upsetting stuff on the show, is when they are are captured. Mm-hmm. We can transition to talking about the previous occupant of Kasima's cell. We we got quite a bit of information about the creature in this episode and how he is connected to the Lita Project. And now we have a name, so we don't have to refer to him as the creature anymore. Yes. Because he's named Yanis, apparently. Uh, I did not understand Mud the first time she said his name. I didn't either. I... Thought for a second she said Eustace, not his name. But Yanis and Westmoreland said they found him in a Latvian orphanage, which feels very deliberate, right? This is a very vulnerable population, both orphans and a citizen of a poor Eastern European country. And they they found him to have remarkable healing capabilities, which is something I think we could guess would be of interest to this horrible group of scientists. <laughs> Yes. But Kasima puts a name on the gene in particular that they were interested in, in Yanis, which is the LIN28A gene. I I tried to do some reading about it online, but it was all very sciencey and difficult to understand. Like, I understood the basics. They were talking about, like, mRNA and, and, and things like that. And But the clearest sentence that I could find about LIN28A is that it is thought to regulate the self-renewal of stem cells. And I think from that, we can understand why it would be of interest to these folks. They are interested in prolonging life and and preventing disease and curing disease and things like that. And stem cells are very important in that regard. So apparently they decided to synthesize this that they found in Yanis and incorporate it into Lita, which it did not manifest in Lita, but has manifested in Kira. Which is a thing, because genes don't always express themselves in the same way in every generation. Right. There have been, I mean, 
it's sort of a commonly acknowledged thing that some things skip a generation or or whatnot. I, I, maybe I misunderstood, but it seems like from, from what Cosima was saying, that possibly this LIN28A gene, perhaps in combination with whatever Susan was doing to try to inhibit the fertility of the clones, perhaps those things kind of coalesced into creating the prion disease. But I might have misunderstood. Because, but, but Cosima has this line about how the LIN28 gene in Kira is self-regulating, which implied to me that in the clones, perhaps it was not. Mm, mm-hmm. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. But I might have misunderstood that part. That's me making some assumptions. But because the LIN28A gene is expressing itself effectively in Kira, and presumably, we, we are told, in Helena's twins, they want to harvest Kira's eggs. And by they, I mean Rachel, because she's terrible. So terrible. And what happened to all this talk about non-invasive stuff, Rachel? You liar. Well, we knew that was a bunch of bullpucky. Ugh, so terrible. But apparently that's their plan for this second generation of clones. New generation of clones, I guess I should say. That they want to create with the 1300. Surrogates. Sur- surrogates is yeah. a, <laughs> with Kira's eggs. Ugh, ugh. Right? And this is what they were worried about from the beginning with the clone project finding out about Kira. Was something like this. So terrible. And speaking of Rachel being terrible and a jerk, she is reunited, is that the correct word, with her mother post-stabbing? And all we got was more horribleness from Rachel towards Susan. Not that Susan's like the best person ever, but Rachel's just such a, such a meanie. I was going to say jerk. Rachel's a jerk. (laughs) Rachel is a jerk. I actually tweeted, Rachel is such a jerk during the episode and uh, the official Orphan Black Twitter account liked it. Which I felt oddly proud of, proud about. <laughs> I know I shouldn't, but I do. But yeah, because because like she pinched Susan's knife wound that she gave her. Such a jerk. But it is in line what we've seen from Rachel before, right? She wants to assert her authority and her her specialness. That even though she's a clone, she's been able to rise to this position of authority and power within the clone project. It's so true. It, Rachel has yeah. always been a jerk. Rachel has always been a jerk. And and I thought the, the scene between her and Susan was an effective sort of reiteration of, nope, Rachel is still this person. She might have been telling Ferdinand a couple episodes ago that she's doesn't need to hit him anymore, but she's still a big jerky jerk face who wants to be the exceptional clone. Apparently she has not been meditating. No. <sighs> She seems to receive, at least from P.T. Westmoreland, a treatment for the the prion disease, which makes me say, what about Kasima? Are they still giving her treatments, too? Because we see her cough in this episode, and uh, now she's in in a cage again, and I'm just I'm worried about that. Such is my nature during any season, as it airs. Just constantly worried. Yeah, that, that cough seemed pretty pointed, right? I was a little it surprised did. that Delphine didn't comment on it. Mm-hmm. But maybe she was trying to not hover too much. Despite the fact that she is a jerk, I will say I thought Rachel looked great for the dinner party. I really dug the dress she was wearing. She did have a pretty good dress on. I will I will agree. And especially seated across from Delphine in that ridiculous dress. Like, this just does not seem fair. <laughs> why, does, why does Rachel the jerk get a great dress while Delphine has to cope with the terrible dress? It just doesn't seem fair. I have no answers for you. And was it just me? It did feel like the writers were playing up the tension that we saw last season between Kasima and Rachel with the scientists like offering Kasima a lot of praise and seeming very interested in like what she's discovered and Rachel perhaps not really having a place in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a theme with Rachel just generally that she wants to be the main Lita clone. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. If it's not, if it's not Kasima, then it's Sarah. She's like, your attention should be on me, not to them. Right. Because she tells Kasima, you know, watch your tone. But then Westmoreland and Susan tell her, you know, oh no, let let Kasima talk. We're curious. <sighs> Rachel was not happy. It seemed like no. Rachel rarely seems happy. <laughs> 
true. Though she did genuinely smile a few episodes ago. Didn't see one of those in this this week's episode, though, I don't think. I guess maybe she seemed a little happy about being around P.T. Westmoreland. She seems to like that guy. Because which he is also sense. terrible. I was going to say, which makes sense because he is also terrible. Yeah. You know what's not terrible, Stephanie? What's not terrible? Our other podcast. (laughs) So what's going on on our other podcast, Chris? Well, starting this week, we are covering season two of Winona Earp on our multi-fandom podcast called Finalysis. Annie and I are discussing small batches of episodes. We're going to be doing like four or five at a time. Uh, The first episode we are doing about that will cover episodes one through five of season two. And you can listen to that and find out how to subscribe at AskGenreTV.com. We also have a Killjoys podcast called The Quad. Season three of Killjoys has started recently, and we are releasing weekly episode discussions over there. You can listen to the episodes and subscribe to the podcast at AskGenreTV.com slash Killjoys. Killjoys is a good show and is produced by Temple Street, who produces Orphan Black. Very different in tone to Orphan Black, but you still might want to check it out anyway. There's there's good character stuff. Sarah, once again this week, took more of a backseat role. She got to spend some quality time with Kira, which I always enjoy. I was going to say, like, it's a backseat, but it's, it's important. Because she was much more of a mom this episode than we often see. And it was needed at this point, because there's been tension between Sarah and Kira, and Helena, I think, gave Sarah some good advice in last week's episode, and it felt like Sarah was following up on that pretty quickly. Which is nice. I like that Helena is is sort of more of an equal these days, being taken more seriously, perhaps, by Sarah. In this episode, Sarah decides to make a deal with Kira, essentially. And I'm like, I'm not sure if this is great parenting, (laughs) this whole exchange. Or maybe it's great parenting. I'm not really sure anymore. That Sarah says, okay, I know you want to know about grown-up stuff that's going on and and the stuff that we whisper about. If you help me with, with this whole clone club connection, if you help me understand this, I will explain to you what is actually going on. I don't entirely know if that is great parenting, but it feels like the dynamic that we've come to see between Sarah and Kira, where it feels like most of the time Kira is more of Sarah's peer (laughs) than her child. Um (laughs) Yes. I mean, I appreciate that aspect of it. I'm just kind of like, is is this like offering stuff in trade? I'm not sure if that's... (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, it wasn't like a cookie. So <laughs> so I don't know. I'll have to ask my mom about it. She has more expertise in such things if it's if that is a, a good parenting technique or not. But I'm just I, it would be safer if it was a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I will let you in on the conspiracy that is endangering all of our lives if you explain to me uh, our psychic connection. Yeah. <laughs> I am frame curious, it, frame though, it exactly that way to your mom when you're talking to her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am curious to know how much Sarah actually told Kira, because we kind of have a cut to where they are kind of joking around and talking about giving the different Sestras code names. So I don't know how much of the details Sarah gave Kira. It's but true. I did enjoy the different code names. Apparently, Kasima is starfish. Helena is shark. Totally see that one. <laughs> yeah. But I, too, was also puzzled by Rachel being elephant. I, I wasn't puzzled because they explained it. <laughs> when Before she gave the explanation, though, I was kind of like, elephant? I don't know that that's the animal I would have associated with Rachel. Uh, but, but that's I, I what liked- makes it a good code name. <laughs> <laughs> Who are they talking about? I don't know. <laughs> But I I liked the idea that it's because they are scared of mice. But at the same time, what do you make of that comment? Well, I mean, Sarah comments something about Kira being the mouse, right? Right. But then they say something to the effect of, 
is she scared of you? And like Kira says, we don't want her to be. So I was wondering in Kira's mind what the mouse was that Rachel was afraid of. Like, I don't think that the sentiment is necessarily wrong that Rachel is perhaps scared by something that seems so much smaller than herself. Uh, But I was kind of curious, though, what Kira exactly meant by that. I pretty much just took it as read that it was, in fact, referring to Kira, or at least what Kira could represent. Okay. But also, I have to point out, after after you did your spiny mouse research, <laughs> Kira was telling Sarah that you're supposed to pick him up like this, and your research says otherwise, right? Yeah, I am. I am pretty sure that is not a good way to pick up a spiny mouse because it will shed its tail, is as a defensive reaction. So <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound right, Kira. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it was nice that they were talking, <laughs> even if Kira was giving her inaccurate information. <laughs> I also liked getting back to codenames. I like that S is home. That was so sweet. And I, I've probably intentionally not 100% sure if Kira necessarily meant that for to be her codename or if she was just simply stating that S is home, like she came, just came home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love it. It really warmed my heart. It works on several levels, which I enjoy. You know what else warmed my heart? The same thing that warmed my heart, probably. The triple spoons! I know! The three generations spooning on Kira's bed. Ah, I, I guess- had to hold in the noise I wanted to make uh, as it was airing. <laughs> oh, my heart. The three generations of spoons. That immediately succeeded the scene in which Kasima stands up to Westmoreland and won't shoot Yanis. So I was already emotional- And then that came on, and just the tears started welling up in my eyes. Because according to you, they don't ever actually fall. (laughs) They hardly ever fall, but they did well up in my eyes. I love this show. Me too. So we now have Kira better understanding the context for what is happening around her. But we still have this ticking clock, right, that Delphine presents at the end of the episode, that whatever they're going to do to Kira, it's going to happen soon. Because there are only five episodes left. Exactly. (laughs) But I I really, actually, I really hope that Kira is going to have a role to play in this situation. I I feels like they're leading in that direction. They're giving Mm -hmm. her more of a sense of, of self and like asserting herself as an individual. So I really hope that she can play an important role in this somehow. It, It does feel like that has to happen at this point. Oh, also, a thing we should talk about is Mrs. S has Hellwizard and Scott putting together all the information they can find about Westmoreland and Neolution, and she specifically mentions to them, okay, we need to find people who died at this point, and explains that it's because she thinks, basically, she thinks that my theory is correct. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet you felt pretty vindicated in this episode. I did. I'm like, I'm like, Mrs. S and I think the same, which makes me feel really good about myself. <laughs> and Kasima called him out, too, saying, you're not 170. That's just smoke. Yes. We're all geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, I, I just, I liked that they came back to that whole thing about, uh, this is us having them actually research historical PT Westmoreland and and Neolution and stuff like that. And I like that they talked about the fact that basically that whole school of thought sort of wasn't a school of thought until more recently. Yes, they said the 1950s, I believe, was when the term Neolution started appearing. Right, when people found the, the thing that PT Westmoreland had written. Right. We have P.T. Westmoreland disappearing at the end of the 19th century, and he apparently wrote that manuscript then. And then we had the reappearance of the term Neolution in the 1950s, and then they referenced Dr. Cody and Susan Duncan meeting in the 1970s. Yep. We are developing a sense of a timeline, and hopefully somebody has has taken good screen caps of those flowcharts on the chalkboard because it feels like people really want a flowchart to help explain everything. (laughs) I mean, I get it. It's pretty convoluted. 
It is. But I like it. But Kasima, she made that comment that I just mentioned about how Westmoreland isn't actually 170 in the context of asserting to him what Mud told her. The fact that all of this is happening now, whatever Mud meant by that, because Westmoreland is sick. So that's some follow-up on him receiving whatever treatments we saw him receive in the previous episode. I wonder if he has cancer or something like that. Could be. Yeah. Uh, they are talking about gene manipulation and shrinking tumors and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I think what Mud was talking about with all of this is happening now, at least partially talking about Yanis, right? Right. Because he'd apparently done more experimentation on him recently. And Kasima cites the reckless science that Westmoreland is doing. And Mud also reveals that she was the one who released him from the basement. Yes. I wonder if she'll be the one to be able to release Kasima next episode. Uh, it feels like Mud is at the end of her willingness to go against stuff, but I could be wrong. She could surprise me. And if P.T. Westmoreland knows that she's the one who did that, then it could be that Mud's name is Mud. Ah! <laughs> I'm going to call you a jerk, Chris. <laughs> I'm not the one who named her that. It's not my fault. <laughs> but speaking of Yanis, Ira makes a comment to Susan about the villagers and the creature... And I'm just kind of like, clearly, this is some reference to Frankenstein and classic horror films, right? Hmm. Yeah. Villagers, point. a creature. The villagers are scared of the creature and yeah. they're going after him. I mean, come on. And Frankenstein was a, a piece of literature that they have referenced previously back in season two, I believe. They have Johansson read. At least some sort of I don't know if he's reading directly from Frankenstein, but Oh he, no, he was he was retelling the story in a yeah. slightly more child friendly manner. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But just I mean the the word villagers and the creature in such close proximity, I'm kinda like this this feels like I mean maybe not even necessarily the, the book, but like the old movies and stuff always had like an, a mob of angry villagers going after the creature. And and speaking of Ira, we should probably point out that he seems to be glitching now. Yes. And Kasima noted. Yeah, that's not good. I was glad they came back to the red roof thing, because in that scene where Susan asks him about it, I was like, he doesn't answer. I he know. He doesn't answer. So I'm glad it was noteworthy that he didn't answer. I figured it would be, but it is good that they actually responded to that within the episode. Acknowledged it. So I have I have two grumps that I want to express, but I'll start with the grump against the episode itself so that I don't end on that. My grump against the episode itself. Why did the people who got attacked slash killed? I don't know if I 100% believe that the first guy wasn't killed in this episode. Why did they both have to be not white? The only answer I have for you is that Yanis is racist, <sighs> which is not a not a good or acceptable answer, but uh, nor and really is perhaps a bit too flippant. But <laughs> I was going to say, nor a particularly serious one. So I just no, I do want to grump at the show for that for making the the victims in this episode people of color. It happens too often on TV. It really does. Knock it off, TV. And then my grump at a character, rather than the episode itself, Westmoreland referred to Kasima as Delphine's friend. Ugh, if I didn't dislike him enough already, that really just pushed me over the edge. I mean, it's supposed to. I know, it worked. You're, you're <laughs> supposed to side-eye him, either a little or a lot for that. Also, we got an email from Fred talking a lot about the house that they're using for P.T. Westmoreland's house. Uh, I will I will put some links in our show notes that he sent us. I, I did want to mention a couple of things that he mentioned because I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, apparently, the person who built the house in 1936, whose name is Robert Jackson, was apparently very into health and longevity. Oh, and 
In one of his books, he stated that he could easily live 120 years. And I'm like, huh, this kind of lines up really nicely <laughs> with, yeah. with the stuff that's going on. I should also note this guy did not live to 120. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little overconfident. <laughs> but uh, apparently was, was very into uh, health and wellness and... Uh, had apparently a pretty impressive physique at the age of like 75 or something. So again, I will, I will put stuff in the show notes that Fred sent us because it is pretty interesting. That kind of makes me wonder because we, we mentioned that it was used as a shooting location for the bird watchers house back in, in season two. I wonder if they, you know, secured that location because it seems to be a pretty common shooting location that various Canadian TV shows use when they film in Toronto. But I wonder if they secured it for the bird watchers and sort of learned about the history of the house and thought, you know, who really should live here? <laughs> hmm, thematically relevant. Yeah, yeah, because that seems like too big of a coincidence, especially since they used that location before. I mean, maybe it's just that okay, we can we can get permitted to shoot here and it looks cool and all that stuff. But I, I do wonder if it was particularly of interest to the the showrunners, etc., because of its connection to that guy. Could be. Thank you very much for your email, Fred. We really appreciate the information you sent along. We received other feedback about P.T. Westmoreland's house. I didn't think we'd spend this much time talking about the house so much, Chris, but... <laughs> I know. And I think actually uh, what Erica has to say, I thought we mentioned this before, but perhaps we, we didn't give good context or we, we didn't mention it specifically enough. Uh, but Erica said, back in the podcast about episode two, you mentioned that P.T.'s house might be the house from the bird watchers. It might be, I'm not sure, but as I was watching episode four, I realized it was the same house they used in Lost Girl. It's the house she goes to... After after she escapes from the Wanderer's train and finds the family haunted by the body jumper. Just thought I'd share. Thank you for your feedback, Erica. I feel pretty confident it's the same house that they use for the bird watchers per websites that track locations of such things. They, they say it's the same place. So we're going with that. And I mean, I think at the time we'd recorded that episode, we hadn't seen the other side of the house. But now that we have seen the other side of the house, I'm like, oh, yeah, I recognize that place. <laughs> mm hmm. We also got an email from Kathy. She says, I still think that bit in season one where we saw Delphine dolled up and implied sleeping with Leaky was a scene that needs to be retconned. Remember her almost laughing about Cosima making a pass at her? Her words didn't fit her actions previously at the Neolution talk and afterwards. Is she really so sly and sneaky when we are led to believe she really does fall for Cosima shortly after? Everything since shows her genuinely being in love with Cosima, which is why I dislike those little throwaway scenes that imply she is playing a game. Anyway, the way they talk through their relationship, while incidentally Evelyn is down to her underwear again, Obi knows it's Delphine-loving audience. Indeed they do. And Delphine lays it out. They can either quit or accept that Cosima will push too hard while Delphine will be will be secretive. It doesn't take Cosima long to accept it, does it? The love between them carries them through the lack of transparency on both sides. There better be a happy ending for these two. That's all I'm saying. I actually have to go back to this comment about, well, Delphine telling Leaky about Cosima making a pass at her. I think Kathy interpreted that differently than I did. To me, it was more... Not not that she's being dismissive of it. It's that she's I don't know surprised by it or something like a like a huh, can you believe that happened? Yeah, and I think I also got an undercurrent of just she wasn't entirely sure how she felt about it. She seemed a little I don't know surprised and maybe not sure what to think. Uh, but I didn't think she was laughing at Kasima or something like that. So no, yeah, I didn't quite interpret that moment that way either. Yeah. But I do agree, Kathy. I I really do hope there will be a happy ending for these two. I feel like there will be. We've mentioned before, but we know that Graham Manson is aware of the the tragic ending that female-female couples often have in TV shows and the like. And I, I feel like he's going to avoid that. I have faith in him. Yes. We also received an email from Joe, who had comments about several things, but she also had some strong feelings about Delphine. So uh, Joe said, uh, there's a lot to unpack, not the least of which the new information on the history of P.T. Westmoreland and Neolution. It seems I have to redraw my family tree after each episode this season. What I wouldn't give to take a look at Hell Wizard's map. 
What P.T., Susan, and Rachel have planned for Kara is worse than anything I could have imagined. Having just read the Helsinki comics, it gave me not only the creeps, but also visions of many, many little Kiras running around and being invincible. What a terrible, morbid Groundhog Day this show is. I'm really excited to find out who Siobhan's deep throat is. Siobhan is the master of secret alliances, Marion Bowles, who I think was confirmed dead in an interview, but we've heard that before. Ferdinand and Mark could still all fit the bill as well, right? I hadn't considered Ferdinand or Mark. Hmm. But most of all, Delphine! I cannot deal with that flashback. I just have too many feelings, but one seems to become more and more prevalent. Defy them and they will never own you will become my new life motto. She so surely believes that by living her best life passionately and authentically and staying true to her cheeky self, Cosima can achieve anything. I'm going through a transitional period right now, and this episode and speech could not have come at a better time for me. I've been deeply affected by TV episodes before, but I can't recall a time when I've been as profoundly as this. Goodness, I love television and this show. So do I. <laughs> now that you mention it, I am recalling something about Marion Bowles potentially being dead. Uh, but yeah, they've done that how many times already? And kind of characters have been alive. Yeah. So it's stuff they say in interviews. I don't know that we can take particularly seriously again it's not like i don't think we're wedded to the idea that it must be Marion bowles you and i just would like some closure on that front <laughs> it's true it's true it's more of wishful thinking than anything after what ferdinand did though i don't really want him to be an ally to siobhan so i'm hoping it's not him yeah that that bridge has been burned i mean for us for us the audience yeah and I guess Mark is a is a possibility, given Dr. Cody's and, you know, they're both connected to Project Caster, but he's been so out of the loop for the last while. That would be a real surprise if Mark had that type of information. I've also seen a lot of people talking about Ira. Our, our friend Sally messaged us on Twitter about the possibility of it being Ira. I don't think it is. Apparently, Sally's comment was based on his... His little aside to Kasima about, you know, your people say hello. And I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure that's just sort of him indicating to Kasima one, that, you know, her people say hello, but also that, <laughs> but also that he is like in on the clone club stuff, right? I mean, sort of signaling to her that, that he is a bit of an ally, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that was the main intention of that comment. At least that's how I interpreted it. Right. So I don't think that's any indication of him being a mole. But who knows? And we got a voicemail from Stephen. Hi, Stephen here. Really is the family that cons together, isn't it? I loved seeing Mrs. S's impersonation in the last episode. And it it's adorable that Kira is getting in on the family con game too now. I'm also glad we're finding out some about her powers, at least the healing ones, even if I don't know enough about genetics to know if that even makes sense. Though, when I googled Lin28A, one of the things that came up was an article from Nature called Fountain of Youth Gene Unleashes Healing Power, so there's that. Also, loved all the caffeine this time, and seeing Cosima in formal wear, that was adorable. Uh, hoping that Delphine and Felix... And Adele, don't spend too much time in Geneva because there's not a whole lot of the series left. If they're going to be there for a while, I hope we at least get an episode in Geneva. That's all for now. Looking forward to the next podcast and the next episode. See ya. And thanks for sending that to us, Stephen. I, I am also really glad that they are finally exploring Kira's powers, or at least some of Kira's powers. And yeah, because that was something they introduced really early on in the series. It feels like they, they it took a really long time to get around to it. Mm-hmm. Again, with that whole, okay, you have this many episodes left. You better squeeze in everything you, you really want resolved. And then we got a comment from Ralph regarding our discussion about episode 504. A quick thought in regard to your discussion of Helena's development over the over the course of the series – I suspect that her time in the National Park living with nature was as important to her increased self-confidence as her time in Bailey Downs. Avoiding showdowns with casters, drug lords, and cops were distractions from inner growth. And that's a really good point, Ralph. It is. 
I guess I was thinking because she was by herself, it wouldn't necessarily improve her her interpersonal skills, which is what we were particularly talking about in that segment. But you do make a good point, Ralph, that as far as like personal inner growth, I think for sure. And in finding some peace. Absolutely. Because she definitely seems more at peace now than she was when we we first met her. Not that that's that's kind of a low bar. (laughs) Well, every little bit. Helena was not in a good situation when we first met her. Poor Helena. I know. Kira's healing hugs. See, it's more than just the Lynn 28A gene, I tell ya. It's, she's got magical powers. Soul healing powers. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who sent in that feedback. We really appreciate it when, when y'all contribute to the discussion. More voices always makes it better. And we would love it if all you other listeners wanted to share your thoughts about the show with us. You can send us an email feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can also send us a voice message. We love getting voice messages. You can call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223, or you can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts at askgenretv.com. And in this episode, The Frocks were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.